Well, back in 2010, an out-of-work bond trader named Brandon Stanton spent a summer wandering the streets of New York taking pictures. He had no training or experience as a photographer, had no idea what he was going to do with this newfound hobby of his. In the beginning, he focused on architecture, buildings, and bridges, but soon he found himself drawn to the many people that he met on the streets of the city, ordinary people, unknown people, who when he captured them in a moment, became beautiful, fascinating people. A friend convinced him to start a Facebook page, which he did, and within about a year's time, he already had half a million followers. When he began adding a few lines of story to each of the pictures, interest skyrocketed. And today, uh, the Humans of New York website is the most popular photo blog in the world with 18 million followers. Stanton now travels the world on what he calls a treasure hunt, capturing stories and snapshots of the most fascinating creatures on the planet, human beings. I've got a couple of his books at home, and as I peruse the pages and the, the pictures there, what struck me is that Stanton's genius is that he helps us to notice and appreciate people we might otherwise have overlooked or underestimated. Let me share just a few of them with you. How about this young woman? She says, when I walk into a room, I say, the queen has arrived. I mean, don't you want her on your team, whatever that happens to be? Or how about this man? If you bumped into him on the subway, would you have any idea he's working on a cure for cancer, which he is? And how fun would it be to spend a day with this little girl? <laughs> whatever she does with her life, it's going to be fun, right? And then how about this guy's story? He writes, my wife has been teaching me to express my emotions. We walk to the park, we make a little picnic, we have a little chit-chat. Don't you want to say, way to go, dude? I mean, aren't you rooting for this guy and his wife? Doesn't it inspire you to go have a chit-chat with someone that you love? There are people like this all around us. We work with them, we do business with them, we pass them in sidewalks and in hallways of our schools and offices and parking lots every day, but do we notice them? How often do we overlook the beauty of their inner and outer beings? How often do we underestimate the contribution they're making to the world or they might someday make? As brilliant as Stanton's work is, he is only rediscovering what the Bible told us a long time ago, that every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made, destined for eternal glory, and designed to do something good in this world that only they can do. And as, as uh, beautiful as his collection of stories and photographs happens to be, we already have one. It's called the Bible. And it contains snapshots and stories of hundreds and hundreds of human beings. Some of them we know by name, Moses and Mary and Peter and Priscilla. But there are hundreds more whose names we are not so familiar with, whose stories are unknown and overlooked. And so we'd like to spend some time this summer getting to know some of these overlooked, underestimated characters in the Scripture. And by doing so, we're hoping to more fully appreciate 
the beauty of the people we encounter every day and to more fully become the beautiful human beings God designed each of us to be. It's going to be a great series. It's actually a great series to invite a friend to, and summer can be a wonderful time to invite a friend. As people change their schedules and make transitions in life, this would be a great time to bring someone with you. So we're going to begin today in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel with a character you've probably never heard a sermon on, in part because his name is too scary to pronounce. <laughs> give a listen and uh, give a look and I'll show you what I mean. I've been practicing all week, Mephibosheth. If it gets sloppy, I may just call him M for short. But anyway, let's meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. He started out well, but his pride and ego got the best of him, and so in the end, God rejected him as king and chose David to be his successor. Saul's son, Jonathan, was caught in the middle. He would have been a successor to his father's throne, but he had become friends with David and recognized David as the Lord's anointed. Well, as it happened, both Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle on the same day with Saul taking his own life rather than falling into the hands of the enemy. It was when that news came that the nurse, fleeing with the child to protect him, accidentally dropped him, injuring his feet or his legs. We don't exactly know how. And at that point, Mephibosheth disappears from sight and eventually grows up in obscurity, marries, and has a son of his own named Micah. Now, as a descendant of Saul, under normal circumstances, he would have been executed as a potential rival to David's throne. But for some reason, most likely because of his disability, he was not considered a threat to the throne, and so he was left alone, literally overlooked and underestimated. Fifteen years later, David, after consolidating his reign, remembers his old friend, Jonathan. We'll pick up the story in chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. 
Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. So King David had him brought from Lo-Debar. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. So after all those years, David remembers the oath that he and Jonathan had sworn to each other, that they would watch out for each other and each other's descendants as long as each of them lived. So when he learns that his friend's son is still alive, he summons him to the palace. Now let's think about this for a moment from Mephibosheth's perspective. For 15 years, he's been laying low, out of sight, living in an out-of-the-way place called Lo-Debar. The, the, the name literally means land of nothing. He's lost his father and his grandfather. He's lost the use of his legs. He's lost the power and wealth that would have come his way. And he carries with him the shame of a grandfather who failed, forfeiting his throne, and who died by his own hand. On top of that, he knows that any day, the king's men could come looking for him to once and for all eliminate any threat to the throne, especially now that he has an able-bodied son named Micah. Now, I was not a Game of Thrones follower, but my sense is that the contenders for that throne weren't kind to each other's rivals. It's not what kings do if they want to stay in power. So when that knock came on his door, Mephibosheth had every reason to be afraid. Would, would, would David throw him in prison? Would he parade him around the palace in his disabled condition, making sport of his former rival's heir? Or would he execute him and his son as a final act in consolidating his reign? Whatever fear or bitterness Mephibosheth might have been feeling, when he finally appeared before King David, he showed honor and humility. At your service, he says. Well, let's see how David responds. Chapter 9, verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Oh, Mephibosheth can hardly believe it. I mean, for one thing, in that culture, a person with a disability was an outcast. They weren't just un People weren't just uncomfortable with such a person. They believed that such a person had been rejected and even judged by God. So he has no reason to think that anyone should be showing kindness to him. And you can hear the shame that he's carried with him his whole life, that you should notice a dead dog like me. For another thing, his, his life and that of his son have not only been spared, they have been elevated. He's been given wealth and power and honor and a seat at the king's table. The former feud fugitive has, for all practical purposes, become a member of the royal family. This is a remarkable display of generosity and kindness. David didn't need to do this. Surely his advisors were alarmed and warned against it. This Mephibosheth was a distraction at best 
and a liability at worst. And yet David decided to show him kindness. Why? What motivated David to do this? Well, two things, apparently. First, loyalty to his friend Jonathan. Twice he mentions his friend Jonathan. Years earlier, Jonathan had, had risked his own life to protect and promote David. And so now David wants to return the favor, inspired by that loyalty, to show it to Jonathan's son at, re- at some risk to his own reputation and his own throne. But there's a second reason David does this. It's not only because of the kindness Jonathan had shown to him, but because of the kindness God had shown to him. That he, David, a shepherd boy, youngest in his family, should now be the king of Israel. Twice, David uses the the Hebrew word hesed, an Old Testament word that speaks not just of kindness, but unexpected kindness, undeserved kindness. It's the Old Testament counterpart to the New Testament word agape, the unconditional, sacrificial love of God. David is so aware of God's kindness to him that he is inspired to show that same kindness to someone else, even someone who might have been overlooked, even someone who might have been a threat to him. And in doing so, David becomes not only a better king, he becomes a better human being. And that's one of many lessons we could pull from this story of David and Mephibosheth. When we value another person, it brings out the best in both of us. When we value another human being, It brings out God's best in them and in us. When David takes the time to notice Mephibosheth, to bring him to the palace, to listen to his story, it inspires him to show kindness in a way that no one would ever have expected. It not only sets David apart from every other king in the land, it sets Yahweh apart from every other God in the land. And when Mephibosheth experiences David's kindness, his shame is lifted. He becomes a landowner, a fully functioning member of society, a member of the royal family, and a loyal servant to the king of Israel. When we value another human being, especially one we might have overlooked or underestimated, it elevates both of us. It magnifies the image of God in each of us and enables each of us to actually begin becoming the people that God designed us to be. I was channel surfing the other night, just kind of waiting for Karen to come and watch a show with me, and I caught about five, maybe seven minutes of America's Got Talent. And one of the contestants that night was an unlikely-looking performer named Kevin Schwartz. He came on stage tentatively, oddly dressed, and was so nervous he could literally barely speak his own name. As he shared his story, we learned that he was terribly shy as a kid, socially awkward, riddled with anxieties. He told a story of how his classmates in school used to pretend he was invisible, completely ignoring him, 
not looking at him, not talking to him, sometimes for days on end, as if he did not even exist. He grew up to be an agoraphobic adult, hardly able to leave the house or hold down a job. So when he told the judges that he was a comedian, they cringed, fearing a train wreck that this poor man was now going to embarrass himself on national television. And for the first few minutes, that's exactly what it was looking like as the audience struggled to muster a laugh and as the judges tried to hide their discomfort. But little by little, joke by joke, the routine picked up some momentum. Kevin gained some confidence. And by the end, the judges were laughing, the crowd was cheering, and they sent him on to the next round with a standing ovation. Sometimes even TV gets it right. Do you see what happened in that moment? A fearful comedian found his voice and mean old Simon Cowell found a heart. <laughs> when we value another person, when we take the time to hear their story, when we give them a chance to offer to us in the world what only they can offer, it brings out the best in both of us. As I reflected on that little incident, the first thing that came to my mind is that there are Kevin Schwartz's all around us. People we overlook and underestimate, beautiful, talented people. For all kinds of reasons, we overlook them, maybe because of their age or because of their gender or because of the way they dress. Maybe their, their name is hard to pronounce or their accent is difficult for us to understand. Maybe they have a physical or cognitive challenge that makes us uncomfortable. And if we're not careful, people like that can actually become invisible to us. We don't notice them. But if we'll take the time to notice them, to engage them, to learn their story, we'll come to appreciate them in ways we might never have expected. And we'll bring out something good, not just in them, but in us as well. But the second thought that came to my mind as I thought about that little incident is that really we are all Kevin Schwartz's. We may know how to dress a little bit better. We may have a measure more confidence. But the truth is we are all riddled with fear and insecurity and even shame sometimes. We wonder what people really think of us. What, what we have to offer to the world. If, if a panel of our peers would find us worthy of moving on to the next round. That's why it matters so much when someone notices us. When they take the initiative to introduce themselves, to greet us, to use our name, to engage us in a conversation, to ask for our help, to ask our opinion, to invite them to sit with us in a worship service or to go out for coffee afterwards. And whether we're on the giving or receiving end of that kind of kindness, it elevates both of us and brings out something beautiful in each of us. And this snapshot of David and Mephibosheth captures just that kind of a moment for us as David shows kindness to Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth shows loyalty to David.
Last Sunday, I had a chance to go up and visit our partner church in New Hampshire, Christ Church of Amherst. We've been partnering with them for about four years now. Uh, they're an independent church, but they take our sermon feed most Sundays, and, and their pastors often uh, come and meet with us as part of our staff. One of their core values as a church, I noticed, is to celebrate people. Listen to how they describe this aspect of their mission. We want to be on the forefront of finding the value in people that's often overlooked. We want to see people differently like Jesus did. We want to celebrate people by engaging them, by noticing something good, true, or beautiful in them, and by expressing appreciation for something they contribute to the world. What a great mission. They want every person in that part of New Hampshire, every person who walks through the door to feel as though they are special and valued and loved by God and by them. And I can tell you that's how we felt in the morning we spent with them. It was a great morning. And surely that's what, that's what the church is all about. We've been talking about it all year long. A place of true belonging where every human being can find a home where every person matters simply because we are made in God's image, destined for glory, and have something beautiful to offer to the world by God's grace. Now, it turns out this is not the last snapshot of David and Mephibosheth. There's one more. We don't have time to look at the whole story. But this last picture was taken later on, some years later, during a dark period of David's reign. His son Absalom rose up in rebellion against him, driving his own father out of Jerusalem away from the throne. David eventually regains the upper hand, and as he marches back into Jerusalem, he is grief-stricken at the loss of his son, feeling betrayed by people who were his closest advisors. And the first person to welcome him back to the city is Mephibosheth. Chapter 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. Remember, Mephibosheth is still challenged by his disability, but he finds a way to get down to the gate of the city and to be there when the king returns. And it's clear by his appearance that he has been in mourning the whole time David is gone. While his own son, and uh, David's own son, and so many of his followers are in rebellion against him, Mephibosheth has remained loyal. And so on that day, Mephibosheth authored, offered David the kindness and loyalty that David had shown to him years earlier. And so the man with the funny name becomes one of the many overlooked and underestimated human beings we meet in the pages of Scripture. Humans who teach us that when we value another person, we bring out God's best in both of us. Now, before we finish up this morning, I want to introduce you to an interesting human being here at Grace Chapel, someone who understands something of what we've been talking about here today. Would you welcome Brett Olson as he comes to join me here at the platform? Hey, Brett. 
Now, Brett has been a part of the Grace Chapel family since you were a kid, right? How old? Yep, uh, about fifth grade. Fifth grade, okay. And uh, so has grown up here at Grace. Along the way, he's done some internships with us as he made his way through college and more recently done some mentored ministry with us. And he just recently, this May, graduated from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Uh, Brett and my son Daniel have been friends since fifth grade, Yep. so I got to, I've gotten to know Brett pretty well, so I asked him if we could have a little conversation today about some of the things we've been talking about. So, uh, uh, Brett, we talked today about Mephibosheth being overlooked and underestimated in part because of his physical challenges. So, how have you, have you experienced that kind of thing, maybe in, in the world at large and even here at Grace Chapel? Well, I think broadly that hasn't been my experience. I've been blessed in many ways to have uh, parents, to have siblings, to have uh, friends, and to have a church community that's really stood behind me and really supported me throughout the years. Um, whether that was going on a mission trip to West Virginia in the seventh grade that was primarily construction projects, um, they would do everything that would uh, help me to succeed and to make it work for me. So I, I'm very grateful for that. And I think this is often the approach that we would hope for for people that are underestimated or overlooked. Um, and I think there's often a desire to engage with people like me, but I think sometimes there's a lack of knowledge in how that's accomplished. Although this hasn't been my own experience, I think that there's often a belief that um, as long as people have access to the church building, handicap ramps, uh, parking spaces, um, elevators, that uh, the spiritual work is done, that that will meet their spiritual needs as well. And we know that that's not the case because the church is not just a building, but it's about relationship. Relationship with other people, with those around us, with people in the congregation, relationship with Christ himself, and uh, that's the most important thing. The thing that people with disabilities and the thing that I think we're all seeking if we're honest with ourselves is authentic relationship. And in my experience, there's been no better place to find that than right here at Grace Chapel and in the church. Uh, Brett, well, talk to us a little bit about how your physical challenges maybe have uh, stretched and tested your faith experience. Sure. So my physical disability is something that I've always kind of wrestled with in regards to my faith. Um, at six months old, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And for the years growing up, I questioned whether God had made a mistake with me and whether he really had any sort of purpose for my life. There were days that I remember lying in bed as a kid, um, wondering why God wouldn't heal me. Asking questions that if, if you would only heal me, God, then maybe I can accomplish things in the world. And over the years, I became very angry and bitter towards God when that physical healing didn't come. Everyone says that you love me, but why don't you answer what I'm praying for? The breaking point for me came during my freshman year of high school uh, after some complications from a major knee surgery um, that resulted in me spending several days in the intensive care unit. And it was in these hours in intensive care that everything came bubbling to the surface. I wondered why God was allowing me to suffer, why I had to endure this disability, and um, about the troubles that I was experiencing. But as the hours passed in the intensive care unit, I found that 
what this time was teaching me was that it felt like God was slowly chipping away at the walls of bitterness that surrounded my heart. Slowly but surely, God was granting me his, his perfect peace. It felt like God was saying to me, I don't need to heal you physically in order to accomplish things through you. All I need is what you can give. Amen. I just gotta say amen to that. Oh, thank you, Brett, for sharing that. We, we've talked a little bit about the fact that when we engage people in relationships like this, it blesses both of us. It brings out something good in yeah. both of us. So how have you experienced that, both on the giving and receiving end of relationships? Sure, absolutely. So uh, this has certainly been the case for me. Uh, some of my most spiritually formative moments as a, as a kid growing up were uh, when this sort of engagement happened. A lot of my own faith journey started uh, when youth leaders right here at Grace invited me on a winter retreat. And it was on that retreat that I uh, really came to know that God loved me and cared about me and uh, really came to a commitment with him. And this really wasn't a set part of the ministry, I don't think. This wasn't something that they had planned for, but it really came from them engaging me on something I was passionate about, which happened to be the 2004 Red Sox at the time. There you go. (laughs) And it's really this sort of approach that I've taken in my giving relationships, in my giving opportunities as well. I've often thought that as the older person or the person charged with the leadership responsibility that you're responsible for uh, providing all the knowledge and the wisdom. But what I've constantly been amazed by in uh, conversations like this is by how much I've learned and by how much I've seen Christ in every conversation. Whether it was tutoring first graders in Lynn and having conversations about what it was like to talk to people with disabilities and how to approach them. Or it was ministering to refugees in Portland, Maine, and meeting kids like Muhammad, who was a 10-year-old whose family had come from Somalia. And at the end of the week, he said uh, he wanted to be roommates with me in college someday. And I, uh, I hoped I was gone by then. I told him that. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the week, he said that the Jesus that we've been talking about all week was pretty cool. And it was serving right here around circles with uh, teenagers here at Grace and watching them grow to learn to love God and to serve in their communities and to uh, eventually graduate and move on to uh, great things in the world. So I've really found that these sorts of relationships have taught me as much as they've taught the others. And I really sense the spirit in each of these conversations. So one piece of encouragement that I can offer is that people with disabilities have stories. I have a story, you have a story, and often people desire to share them. Sometimes all you have to do is ask. Thank you, Brett. I love that final word of encouragement. Everyone has a story. Sometimes all you need to do is ask. All you need to do is notice. All you need to do is value another human being and find that God brings out something beautiful in both of you. And in case you hadn't noticed, Mephibosheth's story is our story. 
Because like Mephibosheth, we too are descended from a failed ancestor. We too have been disabled spiritually in a fall of our own making. We too were exiled to a far country where we could easily have been overlooked and forgotten. But God remembered. Remembered that we were made in his image for eternal relationship with him. And so he sent his son Jesus to find us and bring us back to himself. And through Jesus' death on the cross, he offers to us forgiveness for our failures, release from our shame, a seat at his table, and a share in his inheritance. If God has shown such kindness to us, how can we show anything less to our fellow human beings, the ones who cross our path every day? So who might you be overlooking or underestimating these days? And what might happen if you were to notice them and value them in Jesus' name? Let's prayerfully think about that for just a few moments, and then I'll pray. We thank you, Lord, for this remarkable collection of images and stories that we find in the scripture. We thank you that you have given us a book full of human beings, every bit as flawed and fallible, every bit as beautiful and promising as each one of us is. Thank you that you speak to us when we spend time looking into the scripture and contemplating the story and inviting your spirit to have your way with us when we give ear to each other and each other's stories. So we thank you for opening our eyes this morning, perhaps, to the beauty around us and maybe the beauty within us, whatever we need to see today. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would leave here today knowing that we are loved and valued, that we might share that love and value with every person we meet. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.